Hi, my name is Eris Omar, and this is Scale Up with Harmony, the podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs who want to scale their business online without sacrificing any aspect of their life. You want to achieve all your lofty business goals, foster beautiful relationships, and then you want to be proud of your health. I'm glad you're here. In this podcast, you'll discover actionable strategies, tactics, and inspiration that you can apply to your unique situation. If this is appealing and exciting to you, go ahead and subscribe wherever you're watching or listening, and let's get on this journey together. Hello, today we have an amazing guest. I'm not going to spill anything here. I'm gonna let you, Matt, introduce yourself. First and foremost, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, Harris. How are you doing today? Doing great. Where are you at? Where are you from in the world? Yep, dialing in from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Okay, beautiful. All right, so let's start with your story. Uh, Every single one of us, I like to believe that we are unique. Uh, I want to hear about your background, but more specifically, who was Matt growing up as a teenager, as a youngster, all the way down today? So obviously, uh, if you can make it as uh, short and sweet and efficient as possible, it'll be a good introduction for our conversation today. Yeah, sure. I appreciate you asking. It's uh, I, I love that we each have our own origin stories and they shape our later experiences. I certainly didn't appreciate that when I was growing up. I grew up in the Midwest in Missouri and uh, had a pretty uneventful childhood. You know, I was average at sports and average at school and pretty much average at everything. But the one thing that, uh, as I look back, was a little bit noteworthy is from the time I was in fifth grade, I knew I wanted to be a U.S. Marine. I'm not sure why, how it got in there. I said, what's the toughest branch of the service? And and the Marine Corps showed up and I said, well, that's what I'm going to do then. And sure enough, when it got time to uh, apply to colleges, I applied to the U.S. Naval Academy, but I didn't get in. And instead, they had given me a, a full ride ROTC scholarship, uh, but I had ended up going to the local college, uh, University of Missouri, and I wasn't really ready for that. I wasn't mature enough for that, and I wouldn't go to class. And I turned in a 0.7 GPA and they said, you know what, you don't need to come back. <laughs> and so I actually, at that point, I enlisted in the Marine Corps because I liked the military part. I just wasn't ready for the school part. So, uh, you know, my um, my dream of, of being a Marine kind of took a little different turn uh, in the sense that when I got to boot camp, they, uh, they did two things for me. They shaved my head and they jammed a book of leadership principles into my hands and I kept the haircut and I kept the book, as it turns out, all these years later. But uh, when I got into the into the service and, and started to say, well, what's the toughest uh, part of the, the Marines I can go to? I was an Arabic linguist at the time. And they said, well, you can go to this reconnaissance team and try out for these special forces. And so I did that. So toughest branch. I said, what's the toughest duty? Just give you all the tough stuff. So I think that kind of said something about my achievement orientation and, and uh, respect for performance excellence and all these sorts of things. What I learned when I was in is that the leadership techniques that I really appreciated and how much leadership development we had was not going to be the same when I got out. So I was in for six years and I took my first civilian job and I was like, I'm ready for more of that leadership stuff. And they're like, what are you talking about? That's not something that we really do here, uh, at least not in the same way. And I thought, oh, okay. So I'll just have to kind of figure this out on my own and was listening to audiobooks and absorbing Harvard Business Review, anything I could find on the topics of leadership. And uh, really just kind of uh, fell in love with professional development and decided to get my PhD in psychology and study it, you know, at the, at the highest levels, studied leadership, coaching, all these great things, and, uh, and really started to 
apply them in my work as I progressed and started managing teams and becoming executive in, in software companies. And and it really brought me brought up to, you know, just a couple of years ago. That was that was sort of my my origin story it was a combination of military experience, operating experience as a software executive, a lot of self study, PhD study, just just couldn't get enough of it. A whole lot to unpack, man. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where to start here, but uh, a lot of good stuff. Let me start here. The theme of your teenage or maybe your early 20s is, at least from my perspective, is toughness. You wanted to get in the military. You wanted the toughest uh, side of the military. You're always looking for that. I'm tempted to ask you, where did that come from as far as influences? Was it uh, the friends, the family, something that happened in your childhood? Because when I look at my childhood, I was not looking for the toughest side of life, man. I was looking for the 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 drinking I was drinking that Kool Aid. The toughest thing that I probably doing was playing sports. But uh, why, why were you attracted by toughness, or were you tough essentially from the get go? Yeah, I think that always being achievement oriented and goal oriented just kind of came naturally to me. I wasn't really surrounded by a hyper competitive environment, but it was something that I, I really, um, in terms of of achievement and and working hard and uh, earning things, was was very natural to me. But I was not the most competitive when it came to sports. So, for example, I was on basketball teams, baseball teams, wrestling, whatever. And uh, I wasn't the most hyper-competitive person. Like, you see those people who are really locked in. Uh, but when it came to achieving uh, tough objectives, that part of competitiveness really resonated with me from the beginning. It wouldn't be until many years later that I would recognize the fact that I was uh, suffering from imposter syndrome, that I, was, uh, I would classify myself as an insecure overachiever, that I struggled with self-worth. Uh, those things absolutely were present in me and I'm sure fueled a lot of that achievement, uh, even from the earliest ages. So where did it come from? Uh, <laughs> you know, probably from some pretty deep sources, but I, I couldn't point to anything in my external environment. It was definitely coming from within. That's interesting. I want to piggyback of that as well as the willingness to achieve and more probably the imposter syndrome. I heard a lot, I don't know what you thought, and I would love to hear them, that the more achieved, the more ambitious, the more uh, successful you are, I don't want to say the more insecure you are, but that plays and that fuels for you to get up there. I really want to get your thoughts because you've achieved a lot, not just academics, but also professionally and obviously in the army. So what are your thoughts around fueling and using the lack of confidence, the imposter syndrome, however you want to define it, to boost you to for, go forward? Because you would think, or I would think that, no, it'll actually pull you down, but not in your case. It actually pulled you forward. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like um, that interest in uh, success and achievement and, and being goal-driven, it fueled my performance, absolutely, because I had something to prove. And and that didn't stop even when I earned the title of Marine or I became a PhD. Uh, all these things, I, I really had a lot to prove to myself. Even recreationally, I started running a little bit. I'm a painfully slow runner. I was never going to win a race. But I decided I want to run a marathon. Okay, ran a marathon. I said, well, I'm, uh, I heard about Ironman. I'm like, I, I don't know if I could complete an Ironman. And that thought bothered me. I'm like, what do you mean you can't complete an Ironman? Who said that? You know, well, you said that. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, so I went and completed an Ironman. But I'll tell you one of the things, Eris, that was different. When I was, uh, I ran my first marathon. This is going back a couple of years. I ran the Marine Corps Marathon. And at the end, I fell into this kind of postpartum type depression where I was like, I thought that was going to make me happy, you know, running that type of a race. And I thought, I'm not happy. So what does that mean? Do I have to go do an ultra marathon now? Is that what it's going to take? Like, where does this end? And it was the first time I realized that there was a difference between 
being driven toward achievement and getting performance out of it, but not getting happiness and satisfaction. So by the time I, uh, a couple of years after that, when I started my Ironman pursuit, I had no expectation at all that becoming an Ironman finisher was going to make me happy one lick. Uh, and I really enjoyed the process a lot more, even though the achievement was greater, you could argue. I actually, uh, I, I attached to the outcome and as if it was going to complete me or make me happy a lot less. And it made it much more rewarding as a result. That's interesting. I want to get back to enjoying the process versus the result. But before that, can you refresh our memory as far as today? How many hats do you wear? Because you mentioned software exec, obviously PhD, et cetera. But as of now, how many hats do you do you wear? Yeah, I think all of us wear a lot of different hats. And if I kind of look at it, uh, we'll stay in the professional domain for a second. So I'm an author of a new book. I'm a podcast host. I'm, uh, I give talks, workshops, those kinds of things, all in the areas of enlightened leadership. It's uh, something I'm just incredibly passionate about and, and have benefited from learning about that. I also work for a company called The Predictive Index, where I do talent consulting for very large enterprises. And I enjoy that type of work and organizational design and team dynamics and these sorts of things. I'm a, a husband, 28 years, going strong, infatuated with my bride still to this day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, father to three college age kids. In addition to that, I've got my own hobbies that I like to pursue. So I wear a lot of hats like we all do. And uh, it, as I started to uh, decide, like as a younger person, and as a professional, I tried to keep all of these domains of my life separate. Like I, I, I would only wear one hat at a time. And uh, more recently, I've started to blend them and integrate them and, and really see them as a sort of um, really interconnected in a way that I find very uh, reinforcing, very energizing, and very powerful. So uh, th there's an entire story behind that too, I'm sure. <laughs> That's beautiful. And I actually want to shift gears or maybe dive even deeper with all those hats that you have at the household uh, with the different occupation as a content creator for the podcast, all the conferences. How do you keep your sanity, so to speak? I don't know where it came from, but I, I tend to hear quite a bit that something's got to give, right? Either the family time, or your health, or one of those activities, how do you make sure if that's, a, if that's applicable to you, that you're on top of your game, each and every one of those areas, if you will? Yeah, I think one of the things that I do is I've really learned to follow what I call joyful energy. So there are certain activities that I pursue that really make me uh, fulfilled and happy and energized, naturally energized. And so I, I kind of know it at, at my advanced age, <laughs> I've got to learn what those things are for me. And so I really try to, to focus on those things the most. And that might even mean in a given day, making sure I choose which activities to pursue to match my minds, kind of my mindset, my, my uh, mental headspace, as well as my energy levels. So as an example, I wake up very early in the morning and I do a little bit of um, like meditative wisdom tradition reading, because that's how I really like to start my day. Uh, but then I almost immediately go to the gym or do some sort of uh, cardio or whatever to get the energy going before my workday starts. You know, and, and so I've, I've learned that my morning stack or my morning routine uh, is really important to making sure I set myself up to have a, a, a great day. And, and the reality is that because I'm tr I've signed up to do so much in my life, there's not a lot of wiggle room. So I need some pretty elaborate systems to be able to help me organize things and make sure I'm focused on things. And, um, and I'd say in addition to that, having my bride as a, a thought partner, she really keeps me honest when I'm kind of going too deep into any one domain, she'll kind of pull me out and say, hey, you know what, you, you need to go play around golf or you need to get out in the woods or 
do something to kind of get away from the Zoom screens and the email. And if I get to one track, you know, she's a great, um, you know, accountability coach for me in that way. She can tell when I've kind of gone too deep. And uh, so I'm very fortunate to have her, you know, playing that role in my life. When did you realize that you need to have the balance? For example, the routine, right? I don't know about most folks, but for me, it's not something, it's only Lady Mal. Well, I'm not that old, but it's later in my life that I realized the importance of it. For me, it was just, I was doing things by instinct. I was just doing things. One, when did you realize it was important? And two, did it come out of a, a tough situation or it was just natural organic to you or as part of your leadership love, if you will, or appreciation? Is it is that where you got that from, for example? I think one of the first times I can remember going back to actually developing what I would call life systems. And when I say life, I mean holistically, right? So we go through these phases, like when we're when you're first out of college and you're just trying to have a social life and have a work life, that's not as hard to balance. But as soon as things get a little bit more complicated, you start finding that without systems, things begin to break down. So when my kids got old enough to start having their own activities and I had responsibilities on the weekends, that's when I really started to, to learn that I had to start bringing some of my techniques for organizing my work life into my home life. And so I would have very elaborate uh, to-do lists and whiteboards and, you know, when you create Kanban systems and Gantt charts for your family management, you know you've crossed over. And uh, those things really helped me create a, a, a sense of focus. So I developed this appreciation for systems pretty early on. And I would say that like uh, getting things done or other types of, of uh, productivity tools helped me. I'm not huge on them, to be honest with you. I, I'm, I, I use them enough to make them effective, but I'm not, I don't go like super deep with those things, but I, I have to have enough of a system approach to be able to allow me to uh, be as effective as I, I want to be. So I want to talk about the Kanbans and then the yeah. to-dos and all of that stuff, because that's kind of my world in my professional world. But oh, good. how was that working for you as far as translating those tools into your personal life, because I can see them very effective in my in my profession, yep. but I actually never thought about bringing those over to the personal life. How efficient is it? How natural is it? How, how does it translate? And for, for folks who don't know what that is, just think about the way to manage your activities just to be able to deliver whatever you need to deliver, whatever you need to do in a more sequential manner. But if you're an engineer, if you're in finance, if you're in construction, whatever, you can think about applying whatever you use in professional to make your personal life better. But going back, coming back to the question, I love to hear how, how's that going for you? And doesn't that, does it sound organic, natural? Just, just want you to expand on that if you don't mind. Yeah. I remember having a conversation with my bride and we were talking about how hard it was. We were losing track of some of the details about which kid needed to be where, which school assignment was going to be due on a certain day. And I said, when I get at work, we have floor to ceiling whiteboards. We have whiteboards everywhere. I said, what part of our home is the command center for all the stuff. She says, you know what? The kitchen, because this is where we always are. You know, everybody passes through is where the kids grab their lunches, whatever. I said, let's just install a four foot by six foot whiteboard right in the kitchen. I don't care that it's unsightly. I don't want to have an architectural digest looking home, but then have our systems failing us. So we, we compromise in that way of saying, we need this to be right in front of our faces in a high traffic area. So we put that, that, uh, that system up there and you would see on the whiteboard, where every kid was supposed to be, all the assignments, their to-do lists and chores and everything, just all in one command center. And so we use these work techniques to bring home to our home life. And uh, I know that later on, I, I found the book, uh, Three Questions for a Frantic Family, that was written by uh, Patrick Lencioni. And he talked about the same thing. 
and the, the observation he had made in the book was, if we ran our home, the, if we ran our business the way we run our home, we'd be out of business. And I thought that really resonated with me. So I would say phase one, Eris, of this was how do I start breaking down these artificial barriers between our business approach and our whole life approach? These tools absolutely were built for a reason. They work really well. Uh, if we create this artificial barrier, like, no, I'm home. I don't want to do Kanban systems anymore. Do so at your own peril. The reality is the more you can integrate and, and blend these approaches, then it doesn't steal from these domains. It actually makes them work better, in my experience. That's actually interesting. I want to dive in more because that's something I can selfishly learn from and maybe apply. Because in my life, I have my work. Yeah. I have my friends from sports. I have my friends from businesses. I, you know, it's really compartmentalized. Can you walk me through the journey of, or maybe expand on the journey of, you mentioned earlier that you, at some point you were a different hat and was really different department, if you will, to more of an integrated person or life. Can you walk me through that journey and maybe some of the highlights of the toughest moment or the easiest moment, some of the tools that somebody like me or whoever's watching or listening to this can also use to transition from, again, compartmentalized to more integrated life, if you will. Yeah, I'll, we'll do it a little bit more chronologically. So as an example with the kids, when they were younger and I started to realize that uh, we needed these types of systems, what I also realized was that the way that I was, the, the differences between leading a team and parenting are, uh, there's obviously differences, but there's also more similarities than we might think of otherwise. So I started this practice every Saturday, we would have a family meeting. And I would bring in these team building type exercises from corporate and I'd bring them into my family. So I would give them values lists and we would do our values prioritization. Or we had an example where we blindfolded each other and started leading each other around the house so we could learn what it's like to depend on others and, and just all kinds of things. And the kids would always groan and, oh, we're going to do another family meeting. But later on, when they got older, we were sitting around the campfire one time and they were just regaling their memories of the family meetings that we had. And it was just so amazing to me that they remembered all those years later you know, how much of an impression that that made. We have to have boundaries, yes, but we also have to break down artificial boundaries that hold us back. And that's where using techniques, being willing to use techniques from the working world and bring them into my, my home life really unblocked a level of efficiency and uh, satisfaction and, and uh, performance in the family sense, you know, that wasn't there before. Later on, what I found is that I had gotten into this habit of saying, well, I've got a podcast, but it has nothing to do with work. And then I go do my work. And then maybe I, I write, but I don't write about the same things that I'm interested in. Well, I was creating all these artificial barriers and separations that really were exhausting, to be honest with you, Eris. I was like, I I'm just tired trying to keep all this compartmentalization going. I allowed those artificial walls to kind of collapse and everything just kind of fell in upon me. And I said, what am I all about? What am I really interested in? Where's that joyful energy from within me? And I started to find the unity of my own mission and why I'm here. And then everything started to make so much more sense and flow more efficiently. So what I found is after you know doing a podcast for, for many months, I had people from the podcast who I really resonated with that I put in my book. And I've had you know opportunities to connect my work life with it. Just everything sort of feeds off of itself because there's more unity in our universe than we really always give credit to. So, so by shifting from trying to keep everything separate to allowing myself to see the natural integration and the unity inside of things, everything just flow, has flowed so much more smoothly. 
I want to come back to the concept of unity you mentioned, but let's stay maybe around the household and how you integrated yeah. that together. I can tell or sense that you have a really supportive partner who is really helping and support you in that situation. Is the partner, that's the, that's the structure, are they that type of person or were they different and then you guys grew together and they kind of change if, if, I don't know if the people do change to become supportive because I could see situations where you or you partner doesn't, not doesn't support you, but they're not aligned, but you kind of trying to make things work. I'm not saying yeah. it's good. I'm saying it's bad, but I'm just curious to know from your perspective, was it always, you guys were always in sync or were there a point where you had to sit down and really work together to be in sync so that the family and yeah. the, the kids can follow the, the lead of the parents? That's uh, a great question. So in my case, my partner, my bride, her name's Tanya. She is a former Marine like me. So we have that similarity for this appreciation for excellence. However, that's where our similarities stop. <laughs> so basically, I'm highly organized, regimented, systematic, routines. I love them. So I'll give you an example. Like if I had ever said to Tanya, hey, it's time for a family meeting. Why don't you run the meeting this week? She would have told me where to stick it. Like she's not, no, that, right. I'm not doing that is what she would tell me. You know, you're doing that. That's your thing. You, you do that. I, I'm glad you do that, but I'm not doing that. So there there definitely was differences, but I think there was that foundation of respect that we had for one another. So I really respect her spontaneity and her lightness and her sort of hedonistic approach to, hey, let's let's enjoy life because it balances me. And then I think she does quietly appreciate my regimented routine and my systematic way of of really producing results. You know, it might seem robotic, but it actually it helps. And so the two of us working together are much better. So I, I think as long as partners, it doesn't have to be a, a life partner, um, as, as business partners too, as long as you're complimenting one another, building each other up when you need it, but also, you know, calling you out when you need it. Uh, whoever can play that role in your life, I think is a, a very powerful ally. Thanks for that. Thanks for sharing. That's, that's very important. I also want to come back to the enjoying the process. You mentioned that I think it was a marathon or sure. one of the and then you mentioned that you enjoyed the process more than the result. And maybe I showcase it my ignorance here, but I've always been curious about how can you enjoy the process and not care so much about the result? Can you help me understand that better? I'm just going to give you an example why for me it's a concept that's kind of difficult to understand. Let's just say, for example, you have this business goal or this personal goal, whatever the goal is, and folks will sometimes tell you, don't worry about the goal too much to if you do the little things correctly, you, you would inevitably get to it. But I'm like, yeah, but if I don't get it, then the process is fine. There's a disconnect, right? So curious to know if you can help expand on uh, on that from, from your experience. Yeah, I, I think that um, I love, I'm a goals guy. I love having goals. Um, but I think what happened for me differently was I really used to attach to the objective or the achievement more than the why behind it. So as an example, when I was like, well, I, you know, er, earning the title of becoming a Marine or earning a PhD or finishing an Ironman or whatever, those are great lifelong achievements that they kind of slap onto your identity. You know, they're, they're things that you can call yourself. But in the end of every one of those, I never felt like that the bottomless pit of self-worth could ever really be filled. And so it was kind of an endless pursuit to me in, in some ways. But what happens is that I found that as I was doing, you know, pursuing these long-term goals, like, you know, PhD is six years and Ironman for me was four years of training. And um, 
it, it was just, it didn't make sense to me that you would defer your happiness for four years or more and, and just be like, I'm just going to gut it out for all that time. And then as soon as the achievement is had, I can't tell you that like earning the title or becoming a PhD was like, I didn't get four years of happiness on the other side of that. Not really. So it's like, it, it was a, it was a fool's sort of bargain in that way. So what happened to me differently, so back to the marathon, so after running for however long, you know, maybe a year and a half trying to get ready for this thing, I finished and I thought I, I had gone thinking that achievement was going to make me happy or make me feel complete and it didn't. So a couple of years after that, when I, I got bitten by the, the Ironman bug, I heard about this really lengthy race and I thought, I don't, I don't know that I can do this. I was sharing with you a little bit earlier. And that scared me to think that I was limiting myself in that way or doubting myself. So I said, oh, I'm going to do this. And, and, and the rational part of my brain kicked in and said, well, you, you are a painfully slow runner. You can't swim the length of a pool. You don't own a bicycle. So what makes you think this is a great goal for you? And I said, we'll figure it out. This is me talking to my brain. You know, we'll figure it out. It's fine. So yeah, that, it took four years for me to get myself to a place where I could complete that race. But the whole time, what I was really happy about, Eris, was that I was learning new skills. I was learning about the gear, learning about my body, learning about nutrition. Every week was a new personal best. I've never ridden 20 miles on a bike before. I've never ridden 30, 40, 50 miles. Every weekend was like a new sort of uh, milestone along the way towards this race that even then you didn't know that you were going to be able to finish the day of. I mean, that's a long doggone day, right? Mm. But I really just enjoyed and gave myself to the process. And I remember one time I was running like a, a tune-up race, like a like a half iron or something getting ready. I was on the course and for the first time ever, I was just in my mind and in my body and it was a beautiful day and I was totally present and I was proud of how much progress I had made and I was excited about how much more progress I was going to have to make to get ready for my big objective. But in that moment, I was just there. I was in it to win it. I was totally satisfied with my journey. And that's where I was like, if I can bring this into my professional life somehow, then I will really be making it. I think I understand that. So, because to me, the process was, I was always being linear in the sense that there's nothing to enjoy. The process is the way to get to where you need to, which is true. But what I'm sensing is that there are still things to enjoy as you work and do that goal. Just like at work when you have um, some milestones to take you to the final destination. What I'm hearing is that, yeah, you can still enjoy getting to milestone one, which could be getting to know your body, getting to milestone two. It could be, which could be learning about the gears and, and that kind of stuff. So, uh, I think that that makes better sense. So, thanks, Matt, for educating me today. Well, yeah, and I think there's another thing too. So, like any domain that we pick, there's always two types of goals that we can have. One is known as a performance goal. That's where we have specific numbers. And the other is a mastery goal where we're learning things and it can't really be measured in the same way. And what we find is that the mastery goals are the ones that really produce happiness and satisfaction and the performance goals really are important for keeping us on track. So as an example, right now we're talking on a podcast. There was a time when you didn't have a podcast. There's an obsession you could have over the numbers, but the numbers are an indicator about progress, but they're not necessarily why you do it per se. And think about how much you've learned and how much mastery you've developed from before when you didn't know how to do anything related to this, this endeavor, right? And think about how many people are listening right now who are benefiting from insights from a guest and all your guests and who love following your show. Like all that, all that impact and benefit is not really tied up exclusively in the numbers. So there's this opportunity for performance goals. Let's say you said, hey, I want to have 
you know, XYZ number of downloads. That's great. But think of also don't don't uh, miss the opportunity to experience the joy and the benefit from I've learned a lot. I've come a long way. I'm getting more confident and comfortable with this, whatever it might be. So I think we can have both. I don't think we have to compromise and say, well, because I haven't hit, you know, a number one podcast rating and I'm up there with, you know, whoever. So what? Like, what are you experiencing along the way? Who are you becoming? What impact are you having? These things are where we can have our cake and eat it too. When I look at my life specifically, that's those, the non-metrics driven areas are the ones where I, I'm the most, I don't want to say fulfilled, but satisfied about. Um, yeah. Because that's where I learned. That's where I grow. That's why it excites me. So yeah, no, it, it's a good analogy to podcast. And I'll tell you what, that's what's real, right? That's the most natural. When you still your mind and you connect with something bigger than yourself and something really deep, deep inside you, that's what's going to come back. And that's where the real resonance is going to happen. But the the society we live in, the world we live in, is very much shouting about the numbers and telling us that we need to care about these external benchmarks. And we buy into the a lot. And I think a lot about professional athletes, how devastating must it be to be 25 years old your career is over because you've either aged out or you've had some injury and you're like, oh my gosh, I'll never be in society's eyes what I was. Oh my gosh. So they have to find new ways of creating a, a contribution and actually finding their own self-worth. It's um, it, it's just a, it's a really devastating thing we do to people when we start saying, oh, well, you know, if you don't drive this car, if your business isn't this size, if you don't have this many followers, you know, then, then, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not special. You're not important. You're like, well, wait a second. That's not why I do any of these things. They're important to measure. You can't go the other way either and never measure anything because yeah. then we're not being effective business leaders, but we have to find that, that middle way of having, you know, a healthy respect and appreciation for both. As a leader that you are, how do you manage that? Not for yourself, but for people around you, no matter if it's the household or in the, in the professional environment, how do you manage expectations around with your team around the numbers and the, let's call it satisfaction or have everyone essentially the quantitative and the qualitative uh, benefit? How do you set those expectations? Yeah, I think there's a, something powerful that I'd heard was you have to help others see their why in the bigger why. So why is the organization trying to do whatever it is it's trying to do? What's our mission? You might think about mission, vision, values, all these kinds of things. Uh, but helping others see themselves and their contribution towards the organization's output, that's huge. So in the book, I talk a lot about alignment at the organizational level. Every individual person has to be able to see how the work they do, however, you know, whatever level of the organization they're in, how it eventually makes an impact on the organization's uh, mission and outcomes, because that's how they start to see that they're part of something bigger than themselves. But at the same time, I think that having the numbers and being able to make sure that we're measuring progress, achievements, et cetera, fills that quantitative need that we have. So for anybody on it who's listening, when you have a team that, that you're working with, I don't care whether it's a virtual assistant, whether it's a full-time employee, whether it's a executive vice president, your company doesn't matter. You know, are you clear about how their values are showing up in the work they do? and how that works fulfilling the organization's bigger collective why or mission. And do they have, uh, could they pull out of the desk drawer or can they pull up on the screen and show you the, what they're measuring with tangible outcomes to show progress and achievement? If the answer to either of those is no, then we have a little bit of work to do. As leaders, we need to make sure that people can see those things um, and also feel those things. 
that's that's really really critical. Thanks for sharing. I want to come back to that and, and when we get to the enlightened leadership your book, but I took some notes here around unity, the concept of unity that you had mentioned. Share your definition of unity and maybe give some tools or ways to find unity for those who don't can't find it or not sure if they if they know what it is. I suppose. Yeah, I think there was um, a time when I felt very disconnected, like right during the pandemic in the aftermath, I felt. Like I wasn't really showing up as a leader the way that I wanted. I didn't feel like I was on the super highway of success. I was, I felt I was on the service road right next to it. And I wasn't far off, but I was like, I'm not on it quite yet. And um, that was a really, it led me to sort of explore my philosophical beliefs about, about life really, and try to, to reorganize my priorities. Many of us did that right after the pandemic. We started trying to reconcile what role work plays and our businesses play uh, in our lives. And what came back to me as I started to study, you know, the real nature of, of, of life and the universe and things. And for me, it sent me back to a meditation cushion and trying to figure out some stuff. It really helped me understand a lot more about unity. And the fact is that in every domain, whether you're into quantum physics or whether you're into uh, contemplative science, whatever it might be, this concept of unity is very, very powerful. And it's very true. It's just very hidden. So we are connected in ways that we don't even always appreciate. Like even now, as you and I have a conversation, we're listening to the content of each other's uh, talk and speech, but we're also in our brains picking up on patterns of either inflection or voice or maybe body language. There's a level of communication happening that we're not even conscious about. We're, We're subconsciously communicating in addition to our conscious communication. There's a connection there. There's, in a physics sense, there's gravity that all objects impart on one another. And we never think about it. It's maybe imperceptible in some ways, but it's there. So whether you're into physical reductionism or whether you're into contemplative wisdom, philosophical existential stuff, all you'll find is unity. Everything else and all of the power that our brain has to sort of discriminate and dissect, and this is good and that's bad and judge, judge and all this kind of stuff. It's all layered on top of that. So when we sit down and we cut through all that that nonsense and we get down to unity, we start looking at one another very differently. We start looking at the role our organizations play inside our communities differently. We look at our stakeholders differently. The role of our business and its ability to impact our customers differently. Unity is is really at the heart of, of all of it. And if we're finding any problems in our business or in our personal life, we'll find some artificial separation and we just have to fight our way back to unity. What are some things, for lack of a better word, that, or some indicators rather, that basically tells me, hey, try, focus on your unity, uh, trying to find what your unit is, uh, do some digging, the same thing that happened to you during the pandemic. I love to know, because if I'm, or anybody's audience is really successful from a, a numbers standpoint, uh, is there something that needs to be looking out uh, for or maybe being paying attention to to make sure that one they know what the new unity is, or two that they still a unique talking about unity. If my question makes sense, one clear area inside organizations is a lack of engagement. So when we start okay. to see that employees are disengaged or if they're frustrated, if you see any amount of turnover, any sort of withdrawal, if you're a solopreneur and you're experiencing it yourself, or you're like, I'm just not quite as into my work as I once was. The, in my experience, what happens oftentimes is we've got this, the volume knob on our self-interest is kind of higher than it, it really uh, should be. And then all of a sudden, everything is like, 
that's external to me. That's not going well. This person's doing a thing, you know, all these sorts of things. Unity can help us bring that back and start to shift our attention back to the needs of others. So as an example, if I, if I say that everybody on my team, like how many of them, you know, wish to be happy and, and, and don't want to suffer? The answer is all of them. And me too. We're all, we're all alike in that regard. But how much time do I spend thinking about my own interests relative to theirs? Jeez, the, the, the you know, default chatter in my head is all about me, 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 my world. I'm late to the dry cleaners. I'm not going to be able to pick up my shirt and this, that. It's just all me all the time. And uh, that's not a great way to keep others feeling that sense of belonging and uh, some of those other exercises we were just talking about around alignment and all these things. So to me, I think seeing that we're uni- universally aligned when it comes to sort of our, our collective interests uh, is a much healthier way of, of making sure people feel a part of a team and and that we we have the right way of looking at, at life. So I actually want to jump on that quickly. This, you mentioned engagement. The default, like maybe my default behavior is that, okay, if the person is not, is not engaged, maybe they need an incentive, aka financial incentive, revisit that. Where do you think or how do you think we should, or what some indicators that should that would tell me that, okay, it's not the money, but it's something deeper, aka unity, or the why, is there work or the bigger why? Because that, that line um, could be blurred for some folks. Yeah, the first question I always have is, what do we really know about these people? Have we asked them? You know, a question like what you just asked me is one of my favorite questions. In the very beginning, you asked me about my origin story. I love learning about people's origin story. So, you know, if you have a new employee, for example, and you take them for coffee, or if you have a coworker or you're, you have a customer, doesn't matter who, and you're basically like, tell me your origin story. It's my favorite thing to learn about where they come from because, you know, just as you did with me, you say, what are these sort of, uh, so, uh, a theme I'm hearing throughout your experiences from youth sports all the way through to, you know, whatever is this, like, tell me more about that. Oh yeah, I've always wanted to do this thing, whatever. It's just a, it's an amazing way to get to know them. And I think when we don't make the effort to get out of our own sort of headspace and self-interest and, and sort of understand where they're coming from, then what happens in a lot of exit interviews, they say, oh, I took another job because of the money. It's not true. It's easier to say than to say, I didn't feel like I belonged. I didn't feel a part of the organization. I didn't feel any sense of attachment or team commitment because I was isolated. I was on Zoom all day and I would log in, but I never felt like I was part of the team. That's that's not what, that's what's happening, but that's not what they say. They say, oh, I, I took a job because they offered me more money. Well, mm. if they're not getting growth, if they're not getting coaching, development, these sorts of things, then that's what's going to happen. So I, I think that's where Unity really says, how do I shift a lot of my attention away, you know, from my own self-interest. I have to have some, obviously, to take care of myself. It's not, I'm not saying that that's a selfish thing, but if I overdo it and I don't pay enough attention to the mission and to those around me, that's not leadership. Got it. The theme of our conversation seems to be really aligned with your book that I'm looking at here. Mm. I'd love for you to talk about not just the book specifically, but one, where the idea came from, who it's for, and maybe... What problem does it solve? I mean, I mean to be technical about it, but hopefully you get the idea. Yeah, sure. I think um, when it, it it really was born of my experience in that post-pandemic we were talking about where I was like not feeling like I was fully showing up as the leader that I wanted to be and reprioritized the kind of the role that that work was playing in my life. And, and a lot of that exploration, as I mentioned, sent me back to a meditation cushion, but I stink at meditation. So I'm thinking about work as I'm sitting there on the cushion. 
And uh, there was this uh, Tibetan Buddhist meditation technique known as expanding the circle of compassion. And it basically says, you know, can you wish well-being and happiness for yourself? And can you extend that out a little further, maybe to your to your partner, to your kids? Can you extend it even further? Can you go all the way out to your coworkers and maybe even to a stranger? And can you keep going and expand that sort of interest in everyone's welfare to, you know, all sentient beings throughout the universe? In, in the tradition, that's how they would describe it. And as I'm sitting there thinking about work, trying to honor the practice, I thought, this is exactly how I have approached my leadership journey. I had to learn to lead myself before I could lead others, before I could lead entire teams, or more complex, right? Leading an organization. And finally, when I show up in the world, even when I'm off the clock and I'm not at work, I'm still a leader. So I have to lead the world too. And some, you know, some of my best leadership takes place during, while I'm running errands out in town. And, and it's, it's funny to think about that. So then I was like, it hit me like a ton of bricks, Eris. I was like, instead of just expanding the circle of compassion in the Buddhist tradition, how do we expand the circle of leadership? And that became the framework for, uh, and the, the sort of uh, architecture of, of a leadership framework that I now refer to in the book, Expand the Circle. What happened is I started to say, okay, hold on a second. I can be inspired by these ancient wisdom traditions. That's great. But I am a Western trained PhD level psychology student. Like what is happening here? So I said, all right, let me go find out. When I think about leading yourself, like what goes into that? And I found themes in that example about self-awareness. Okay. So I started to do the research and found amazing you know, uh, books and, and psychology journal articles and everything about the relationship between awareness and leadership effectiveness. And it's right there. One example in her book, Insight, uh, Tasha Yurik, she found that while uh, 95% of us believe that we're self-aware, when you study it empirically, only 10 to 15% of us actually are. So you're like, okay, interesting. So self-awareness is something that we, we may be taking for granted. I kept going and said, well, what happens after that? And I hit on self-acceptance. Well, that's one that not a lot of leaders make it to. They still beat themselves up and feel like they can't have any flaws and have to project this perfect image. But instead, I found uh, psychology research and techniques all relating to our willingness to be vulnerable and to uh, express self-compassion as ways to enhance our leadership. I went on to, to I, I will give you the whole framework and, and spend time on that, but it's it was amazing to me that we could have this opportunity to find a leadership framework that was inspired by ancient wisdom traditions, but was grounded in Western psychology studies and was directly tied to business outcomes. So when you want higher levels of creativity and innovation and productivity and performance, we don't have to go looking for non-human ways to get that. In our companies, we obsess over the funnels and the numbers and the metrics and the operations and technology pretending like people don't have a role in this. Like we ourselves and our humanity doesn't have a role in the results that we're getting. But in reality, it's exactly our humanity that's going to dictate our success and failure. So if we're willing to show up as human beings and really embrace our humanity, that's the future of leadership. And and uh, that uh, that really became exciting to me to think that we can cast off our outdated beliefs about what leadership is supposed to be and embrace this this ironically uh, ancient but modern approach to uh, a new way of uh, of leading others. I have two points here, but I want to be sequential. The first one is, you mentioned a couple of times that 
you were not showing up as a leader you wanted to be before the book during the pandemic. What are those signs, if anybody's out there, could potentially look at or, or some indicators that basically say, okay, you're not showing up as a leader that you're trying to be for your company, for your organization, uh, whatever the environment is. What were those signs uh, uh, for you? Yeah, I think that it, knowing what you're really all about helps. So in my case, for example, I'm a naturally optimistic person. I'm positive. I'm energetic. You know, I'm very uh, empathetic about things. When I became more self-absorbed and into my me world, I wasn't as bright in my eyes and stuff. If people would ask you, like, you okay? Like, they can tell you're off, for example. If that happens because you're having a tough day, that's one thing. But if that's a pattern that starts to emerge, now all of a sudden you can tell that your true essence and your true gifts and your true strengths and all that isn't translating. It's not coming out. It's not showing up in your leadership. So that was a warning sign for me. And when I realized, like, I don't know why this is happening, that all of a sudden was a real wake-up call for me when it was like, okay, I know I'm not myself right now, but I don't know why. That was th That is what caused me to call time out, sit down, get still, figure this out. Because it's not fair to those around me and it's not going to help me achieve my goals or to experience the level of life satisfaction. I wasn't going to show up for my family the way I wanted to either. Like, none of it. So that, I would say that if you feel like you're not yourself, that's a that's a pretty good warning sign right there. At that point, so you were at that fork, essentially, where you're trying to figure out what's going on. Why did you decide to look within versus seeking for outside help? I did think about that too, yeah. And I think that after two things were clear to me. One is that I had spent the last 30 plus years on this achievement path, the performance path, the numbers, the, the, the titles, all that kind of stuff. And it landed me in this spot where I was not myself, not showing up, not 100% happy, not sure what to do moving forward. I said, well, that didn't work fully. <laughs> it's not that I wasn't successful, but I didn't feel like a holistic definition of success was happening for me. So then I had a choice, which is like, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to just muscle through this and just set the next goal, maybe run the next Ironman or whatever and pretend like that's going to fix it. I, I've kind of been been around long enough at this point to know that that wasn't going to work. I had to go in. I had to go inside. You know, what was going to pull me out was not going to come from setting some new external target or taking my business to the next level. It was going to come from within. At that point, I decided, well, how am I going to figure this out? And it actually was not a... Um, uh, fully on a, a, a Buddhist text or anything like that that really uh, got to me, there was a, a book I remember reading called A Liberated Mind. And it talked about a therapeutic technique known as acceptance and commitment therapy, which was, as it turns out, inspired by some of these Eastern uh, mindfulness practices. But it's, it's very much about Western technique. And it started to make me realize that it opened a door for me. And, and one of the biggest points about the book is it said, you are not your thoughts. And so there's this healthy separation you can create between like, if you're, let's say that your business is struggling and you're worried that you're going to run out of cash. That's a very real concern. And, and it creates this anxiety, you know, and we've all been in, in a tough spot before. We have this, these projections and it's okay to feel those things, obviously, but to recognize that the, the catastrophizing we do is, oh, I'm a failure and everyone's going to, I'm going to lose my house and all this stuff. It's like, wait a second, these are thoughts. This is a story. It's a narrative, right? But the, the you, the, the other part of you can observe those thoughts, but it doesn't mean you have to be completely carried away by them. 
Because when that happens, you're not being effective. You're not thinking as clearly about your problems, your solutions, all these things. So to me, that created an opening. And then to your point, I had a decision to make. Do I want to go get some help? Do I want to get a coach? Do I want to uh, join a program? Like I could do all kinds of things. Uh, for me, I, it led me back to some of the contemplative traditions and a little bit more study and practice. And that helped me to make the, the critical connections that I needed to make. Um, Thanks for sharing that uh, troubleshooting, I guess. I just, uh, yeah, exactly. Well, you had to go. Life hacking, right? Exactly. Next one, you, you're about to get to get uh, down here. But you mentioned self-awareness. You mentioned being aware uh, when things kind of start going south, etc. What I love to hear from you, Matt, is what would you say to those who associate self-awareness slash wellness with weakness in the in an environment, competitive environment of business, entrepreneurship, or just any competitive environment, those who would say or would think that, okay, you have to push, 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 go. If you feel discomfort, if you feel whatever, that's not good, then it's a good sign that you have to keep on pushing. What would you say to those? Because there's this, in my mind at least, there's this thin line between it's tough, it's, it's uncomfortable, but you have to push through because that way you get your breakthroughs versus it's tough, it's uncomfortable, you have to step on the brake pedal. Well, fortunately, as a, as a lover of unity, both are true, right? <laughs> there's a time when we can be too clever with ourselves and say, this is too hard, I'm going to give up, I'm going to quit. And it's exactly the wrong thing to do because we need that fortitude. We need that, that discipline and that commitment to the bigger goal to push through the tough times. Absolutely. However, we don't want to um, push ourselves past our natural limits and impinge upon our natural productivity. You could do it too far. And I think what we're starting to see, especially with some of the newer generations to enter the workforce, there's an appreciation for wellness and mental health and mindfulness that some of the, like I'm Gen X and, and certainly that was never talked about when we entered the workforce. Um, I like to think back again, I'll, I'll go back thousands of years and think about samurai warriors. You know, they obviously trained extensively in martial arts and practice and swords, personship and all these things. But at the same time, they had mindfulness practices too. Because they knew that it wasn't just about the the technical aspects and and the the strength and the physical training. The mind was every bit as important. And I think that's a much better model for us to think about. As uh, we don't have to identify a samurai, but you know, to to have that kind of mindset of having appreciation for the strength of mind is every bit as important as the strength of you know all the other hard aspects of business discipline and practice. Or, or physical or whatever it is that we're trying to do. We need balance. We need balance. We need unity. And understand that these two things are intrinsically connected. If you have an executive who says, I can push my people even harder and not give them the chance to uh, recuperate, um, that's that's not a great leader. Um, so I, I think that's that's an important, important to recognize that it's not weak to sit your butt on a cushion and start to reconnect with your true essence and find the stillness to allow your mind to be performing at its best and to really tap into what matters in this life, um, I would never let, I'm a former Marine here, right? I would never let somebody tell me that that time I spent on the cushion is is soft in any way. Got it. Talking about unity, talking about balance, can you share something in your life that if you remove it, it would give more, it would give you more balance? Because you seem pretty well-grounded with deep foundation. Curious to know if you're comfortable sharing, if you're not, that's all sure, fine. Sure. Oh, no, of course. I think it depends on the day. Some days I feel supremely balanced. 
I give you an example. Yesterday morning, a friend of mine, uh, we were met up and did a little walk in the woods, you know, before the workday. Amazing balance. And there was a time we got there and we stopped and didn't say a word. We were both silent, just listening to the birds and the trees. And I'm like, this is good stuff, right? My mindset was more expansive. I was able to do a level of strategic thinking when I got back to work that I don't always have the opportunity to do because I I'm just I get very closed and very tactical and if I if I make myself too busy. So that's an example where creating space in your calendar, you think, oh, I don't have time to do that. Well, do you have time not to? Really, when you think about it, right? Mm. Um, and I think that, but it, but I will say it depends on the day, right? So for me, when I'm at my worst, it's when I sign up for too many things. I let my obligations take over my calendar and it crowds out my ability to get quiet. If I feel like I'm so busy, and this has happened to me many times over the course of writing the book and, and doing things recently, I skip a workout or I skip a meditation session or I skip that walk in the woods because I, I just tell myself, oh, I got too many things to do. I got to crank out these emails or do this, whatever. Not good. That's not going to get you where you need to go, right? And you, you fool yourself into thinking, well, I got this huge to-do list. I had this great gift, Eris, what happened. I found a to-do list of mine from three years ago in some random drawer. And I pulled it out and I looked at these items and I said, these have absolutely no power on me today because they were three years old, right? Yeah. But but when I wrote them, they felt so important and crushing and keeping me from... What a difference of perspective I had when I looked at that and said, wait a second, I have a to-do list right now too that three years from now is going to have no power over me. So why does it have so much power over me right now? I'm not saying I'm not going to do these things. Of course, I'm going to do them, or at least most of them. But not. do I have to do all of them? Do I have to feel like I have to crowd out my mental health and my physical health and my expansive awareness just because I had signed up to do a lot of things? So that, that's an area I think my my inability to say no or at least my my uh, in, in, uh, inclination to say yes, maybe say it a little differently, uh, can absolutely be a risk for me uh, of of having the 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 balance that I that I want. Yeah, I think there's this thing you all heard that uh, the person something along the lines of the more you say no, the more the no's you say, the better uh, successful you will be, or the the higher the likelihood for you to reach your goals. Something along those lines. I can see that. Uh, absolutely see that. Yeah. 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 Let's talk about influences, right? What did your PhD give you that makes you stand out, that makes you different, or the biggest influence, really, or the biggest learning from your PhD that you apply to your work today, that without it, you wouldn't be who you are? And same thing for, for the Marine. I think in the PhD program, you know, I really enjoyed learning all about aspects of leadership and psychology. It's a PhD psychology program, but it was very much focused on on business and organization and personal success. And uh, my dissertation work was in the area of coaching. And what I did was I took a face-to-face coaching program and I translated it for an online format. So I had a coach work exclusively with coachees through technology-assisted means and produce the same levels of uh, subjective well-being, so basically happiness, uh, level of hope, which I thought was interesting, and goal attainment that uh, traditional programs that are face-to-face produced. So what that told me was that the coaching techniques and a lot of these uh, leadership approaches that we recommend, they work and the technology can help make them scalable. So I love that grounded approach of let's test it, let's prove it. Everything that we do, like if I tell you that enlightened leadership is important, I think it should stand up to the light of day of Western psychology, and it does. 
um, as much as as it just sounds good and feels right, that's not enough. Like we need to know the we need proof. We need evidence that these things work. So that was from a, the PhD perspective was how do we take these beneficial techniques like coaching in that example and put them against the rigor of um, academic and and uh, professional research to make sure that they work before we recommend them to other people. It's not okay to go out and just say, oh, you should do what I say. Why? Oh, because it probably works. No, no, we need to prove it, right? We need to we need to defend it. In the Marines, I think it was uh, a really much, really a lot about uh, mission accomplishment and troop welfare. Those are the things they taught us. Your priorities, you must accomplish the mission. That's non-negotiable. And in their in their view, if you get troop welfare, that's awesome. You know, that's great that you did that too. Uh, the first one's non-negotiable. The second one's nice to have. Um, I think in the civilian world, it's a little bit different. I put those on equal footing. But I, I really like that focus of mission accomplishment and troop welfare. You know, we don't really talk like that in the civilian world. But I think that the mindset of leadership is about producing results, period. But it's also about taking our people with us and benefiting them along the way. How do we inspire them to contribute their energy toward a collective goal? Like that to me, that's my definition of leadership. I say inspire them because I can't make people do anything, but I can inspire them to contribute their energy. But we have to recognize that there has to be a collective goal. Otherwise, it's not leadership. It's something else. Now, just quickly, if you could touch on the the downside or maybe the the areas of improvement of those two areas, the PhD and the Marines, as far as you're concerned, as far as you've been, if you're comfortable sharing. Oh, yeah, of course. I, I think in the Marines, I think it works really well for their mission. I think in the civilian world, what you find is that there's not the same esprit de corps. There's not the same level of of understood. We're we're pursuing something like the defense of our nation, and there's not these big ideals that everyone's sort of bought into for the most part. As the leader, it's harder in the civilian world because you have to go further to connect people to their why. Like everybody who's in the service is like, well, I'm in the service, like I'm serving my country. So that's kind of already wired into the deal. That's not the case if you're you know, running a, a small business online or something, you have to give people the why. You have to do more to kind of trumpet that. So I think that's a limitation of military leaders coming into the civilian world is you have to actually put in some of that infrastructure that just came with the deal back when you were in the service. In the PhD world, I think one of the challenges is that we pretend that we can reduce all human uh, behavior to tangible things that are, can be measured and understood. There is a reality, in my view, that the contemplative traditions have for us something that that gives us back our humanity. They have spent as much time studying mindfulness and meditation techniques empirically, but based on subjective experience, as we have empirically in the psychology world, for example, and certainly the physical sciences. So I think there's a limitation if we only take a scientific view of, of what we can see and measure, because there are things beyond our ability to see and measure that are still very important in our humanity, and then in my view, definitely show up in our leadership. So I think that it's too constraining to say we can just take this reductionist view of psychology and Western psychology, but at the same time, we we have to find that balance. We can't practice things that have no psychological foundation, but we also can't limit ourselves to those things that exclusively do, if that makes sense. It does make a whole lot of sense. And I feel like I could talk to you, Matt, for another hour or so, but I'll be respectful of everybody's time. One last word of wisdom for our audience who wants to scale their business, take over the world, don't want to sacrifice their health, their family, their relationship. I know we talked a lot, a whole lot about it. Anything else you want to add or everything we got covered, everything covered? 
Yeah, I definitely don't believe anyone should try to sell you on the fact that you have to sacrifice everything to get one thing. The, the, the power of unity is too great. There, everything is connected. So if you, if you weaken your family life in pursuit of your business, that's not success. And it's going to catch up with you. If you neglect your body and your health and your mindfulness and your mental wellness in pursuit of making sure that your family and your business are okay, but you never take care of yourself, that's not going to work in the long run either. You've got to find the threads of unity and you have to have the discipline to um, make them all work together, but also to make sure that you're not signing up for too much. But it doesn't mean that we have to sacrifice uh, and that we can't have it all, so to speak. You know, but you have to be careful about defining what that all is. Is it really things that you need versus things that you know you might uh, somebody else might be telling you that you need? So that's that's a, an important uh, distinction. Thank you. How can we find out more about you, your book? Uh, you, there's a lot more that you can share with us. But I love the opportunity for folks to reach out to you, find out more about everything that's in your world. Yep, I would love that. Uh, so the book is called Expand the Circle, available wherever books are sold. Uh, the best way to reach me, my personal website, mattpepsel.com. You can learn more about me and, and about some of the things that I do. And if you're a LinkedIn person, I do a, I'm do. i very active on LinkedIn. I would love to hear from you. I will definitely put all these resources in the show notes below. Uh, if you're listening and not watching, it'll be in the show notes as well. Thanks, Matt, for your time. I appreciate your wisdom, your expertise. Eris, it's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Absolutely.